Coming up on Home Dunk, Chuck Klosterman with a discussion of the ethics of sports, including the ethics of deflated footballs, New England Patriots. And also, we're heading towards the championship. It's the next round of the NBA Tournament of Names. Stick around. I hit a home dunk. I wish that you had shown up. I played over my head. Everything was off the charts. I jumped out the gymnasium and knocked it out the park. I hit a handstand. I hit a grand slam. It was a great day for the fans. Man, I got three sacks and broke three. I gave the crowd money plus free snacks I did a hat trick and a backflip It's on ESPN Classic And you weren't there and it hurt me To watch them retire my jersey I hit a home dunk Hey everyone, it's John Moe It is Super Bowl week It's coming up Just a word of caution I do have biases, I am from Seattle I have been rooting for the Seahawks for a long time But I have a thought exercise here for you I don't know how anyone can root for the Patriots. I'm not even talking about the ball deflation thing or Spygate or the fact that their coach wears a short-sleeved hoodie as if such a garment was even possible. I mean, they're the Patriots, and they're playing against the Seahawks. Obviously, the Seahawks are the proper team to cheer for, the team most deserving of victory in this contest. And it's not just because their defense is so good or their quarterback was a third-round draft pick and is one of the lowest-paid starting quarterbacks in the league or their running back is an enigmatic freight train powered by candy. No, no. They're the right team to root for because they're the Seahawks. They're obviously correct and virtuous and good. I don't know how anyone can root for the Seahawks. They're smug fans thinking that they are on the team, that they're the 12th person on a team. Loudmouth defensive players who think they're better than they really are. Their coach who snuck out of college football just as he was about to get busted. And he may be a 9-11 conspiracy theorist. Clearly, the Patriots are the virtuous team. They're victims of a jealousy-fueled witch hunt over deflated balls, which the coach proved was errant because of science. And the quarterback is our lord and savior, and also Gronk. One of those perspectives was a lot easier for me to call upon than the other, because the Seahawks, you know, I, I give you both, but the Seahawks are the proper choice, and the Patriots are immoral. This is fact. According to me, According to the myopia with which fandom presents us, the Patriots' chief flaw in my world is that they're playing the Seahawks. If they were playing the 49ers in the Super Bowl, I would root for the Patriots because clearly the 49ers are to be scorned as much as possible, for they are guilty of the sin of playing against the Seahawks very often and beating the Seahawks more often than most teams do. So obviously they are, if not evil, at least degenerate. The most incomprehensible thing for me as a sports fan is how anyone can root for the team that's trying to beat the team I'm rooting for. I suspect if you were a sports fan, you feel the same way. Think of the rival to your favorite team within the division. It is incomprehensible someone can want that team to win. Now, those fans sometimes seem like nice people, but how can they be so fundamentally wrong? This is the certitude that being a fan really demands of us, the madness that fuels the fire of sports observation. 
When I talked to Sean Doolittle here on Home Dunk a while ago, it was really, really strange. Here was a guy whose job it is to win ball games for the Oakland A's. He's their closer. And so he ends up defeating the team that I root for, the Seattle Mariners. He ends hope. He creates despair. But he's super nice. Sean is nice and normal and funny. And of course he is. But I found it very strange that he wasn't a monster. Like, intellectually, of course he's not, uh, but it still created dissonance in a way that meeting just some regular nice guy named Sean with a fun beard shouldn't be and wouldn't be otherwise. It's a peculiar and powerful thing, fandom. It gives us the joy of victory when our team does well, and it gives us a different yet still very powerful jolt of something, of emotions, of chemicals, of hormones. When our team loses, we feel something. The more we put into our commitment to fandom, the more we get out of it in some form, some strong feeling. The opposite of love, after all, isn't hate, it's indifference. Love and hate, love and despair, love and grief are a lot closer than we sometimes think. And often the difference is the numbers separating two teams at the end of a game. Sporting enthusiasts such as I, such as most of you, I think, prefer the despair and the horror to the indifference. And it's great. On Sunday, my team will have either won the Super Bowl or come all that way and lost. And as a fan, I am pushing my emotions to the center of the poker table and letting the dealer deal the cards. I'm hoping for good ones. I'm hoping to collect all the emotional chips I think I'm pretty good at poker, that my team has good players and coaches, but I recognize this is gambling. This, by the way, is the only type of gambling I do. In real poker, I am absolutely awful, but this is a gamble I'm willing to take. The fan experience, admission to this emotional casino hinges on ill will. I want Patriot fans to be sad on Sunday. I want them disappointed. I want them to cry just as they want the same for me. I am wishing bad things for fellow human beings. My dark wishes for their sadness are tempered by the fact that I know these same fans are better off with despair and disappointment than they would be if they didn't follow sports. Better to have loved and lost, after all. But, though, but, however, though, on the other hand, but, though, this means that we sports fans are kind of jerks. We're kind of awful people. We're kind of engaging in a sort of jingoistic nationalism on a very granular level. We paint our faces. We wear jerseys. We tease other fans in good fun, but sometimes fans beat the crap out of other fans, often after too many beers at a stadium for the sole crime of being enthusiastic about a very similar but slightly different team. And it's not just in the NFL. Go catch a soccer match in Europe sometime. Just don't wear the wrong thing or sit in the wrong part of the stadium or, or say the wrong thing. The passion that makes being a sports fan so great is also one of the most dangerous things in history. Not just in the history of sports, but in history. Divisive passion over similar things. Is there a difference between major world religions? Of course. But they're all major world religions, and when you start putting them on a chart next to each other, they have quite a bit in common. 
Was there a difference between the U.S. and the Soviet Union during the Cold War? Yeah, kind of. Economic structure, social structure. But these were both huge, powerful nations, armed to the teeth, each convinced of their own moral superiority, ready to rain down hell, ready to end the world on the opponent for the crime of being the opponent, which isn't much different than the Seahawks and Patriots. Last year, Brandon Browner played for the Seahawks. Now he plays for the Patriots. So he was a good human last year, and now he's a bad one. After this game is over, the offseason comes, and rosters will churn, and next year there will be a group of Seahawks that is significantly different from the current group. There will be a different group of Patriots, of Rams, of Texans, and Titans, and Jets. There are players that are the enemy now who tried to defeat your team this season. They tried to make you sad, and they will play for your team in the fall, and you will love them, and they will be the good guys. We hate opposing teams, I think, for often the same reason we hate people of other religions or nationalities or any other group, because we fear the other, because we understand them less. We caricature them more. They become less human. They are less complex. I can talk for hours about the history of the Seahawks, most of it sad. With the Patriots, I know like Steve Grogan, Tony Eason, Drew Bledsoe, Tom Brady. I know the coach. I know there is something called Gronk. And I know that for a long time, there was an historically impossible Minuteman playing center on the helmet, and he was laughing at his own paradox. But I know more about 1980s-era Seahawk fullback Dan Dornick than all of my Patriot knowledge combined. I think this is okay. I think this is good. I think this makes me happy. I think this makes me passionate. I think this sets me up for joy or despair or something. But I also think it's incredibly dangerous. I think it's dangerous being a fan. It makes for behaviors and thought processes that are regrettable and stupid and embarrassing. And it also allows for great joy and great despair. And that range, that danger, that power when used responsibly, that risk still beats doing nothing on a Sunday afternoon. Enjoy the game, Dunkaroos. I get a home dunk. The Super Bowl is coming up. I don't know if you've heard of it. Uh, it's a big game. It's being played in Arizona. And uh, I have a few questions for somebody that I know with a broad knowledge of a lot of things to help garner a larger understanding of the, the sports world that we live in. Chuck Klosterman is the New York Times Magazine's ethicist. He is a best-selling author and a writer and bon vivant. Hello, Chuck. Hello, John. First of all, you are in New York City, correct? Yes. And you are from North Dakota. Yes. So what do you think of this snowstorm that was supposedly going to kill everybody? Pretty disappointing. Yeah. I got to say, if it was, if we're using the sports analogies, the storm was kind of like the Clemson football program. <laughs> it really had a lot of high expectations coming in. I mean, it, it, they shut the subway down last night, which is nuts. And granted, I suppose if they, if they don't do this and 15 people die or something, yeah. the mayor you know, gets executed. Um, all right, so Super Bowl's coming up, Patriots versus the Seahawks, and I am biased in, I, I should disclaim this going in, because I'm from Seattle, longtime Seahawks fan, and as a result, I feel like I don't understand the Patriots as well as I should, 
And my question for you is, if football teams were heavy metal bands, are the Patriots Metallica in that they've been around a long time, seem successful in a kind of uh, impersonal way, and are largely joyless about what they do? Um, you know, I <laughs> I don't know if we're going to be able to find a perfect analogy here with metal bands, because the thing is, the Patriots are the most successful modern pro-NFL franchise, um, and have succeeded mostly through kind of savvy and being smarter than the other teams, mm-hmm. and, and basically utilizing talent that other teams did not want. I don't know what would be the metal comparison for that i'm trying to think are there any sort of like a of of like transcendent metal bands who like got a rhythm guitar player from trickster and made him into a like a real great contributor i don't know i mean you know thin lizzy might be a better example actually thin lizzy probably is the best correlation to the patriots how so well you know thin lizzy was always sort of cycling through guitar players and and uh, it, it, the sound changed slightly, but fundamentally it was the same kind of chewy riffs that they always used. Um, their front man was sort of this uh, iconic person unlike everybody else, mm-hmm. a little bit like Bilicek is, and never dominant, but always great. Right. Like the, Patriots have, the Patriots have been the most dynastic NFL team, that almost, except for the year they almost went undefeated. Uh, that was the only year they would stay seen dominant um i mean they're just they're i'm sure this is going to come up in this conversation you know this whole issue with the with deflating the balls or yeah whatever, you know? well you know if this happened to the tennessee titans or the vikings for example um it would just be seen as like oh here's a weird blip in the news nobody would really care the main thing would be like uh how much of an advantage is it really but the patriots are the only team who are consistently in cheating scandals whether it's this or Spygate, or a couple of weeks ago when they put six eligible receivers on the field, which was legal, but probably will be illegal next year, just because they were the first team smart enough to think of it. I mean, they're the only team who does this. So therefore, when this situation happens, um, they seem not only guilty, but it's, their guilt seems somehow meaningful. Like, it, it seems important that, that they may have slightly deflated these footballs the, you know, because it's not just that they're getting this advantage, they seem to incrementally be getting an advantage at every possible position where the envelope can be pushed. Now, is this, a lot of Patriot fans would have you believe that this is the Patriots being singled out because other teams are jealous and they're being penalized for their, their creativity, so the scrutiny is much larger. Well, that is partially true, but they are mainly being scrutinized because they always do this, and no one else seems to. Like they're the only team who seems to be doing these things. And part of you know when the when the when the when the, the controversy first happened, I was like, you know, I mean, I'm, I don't know. Like Belichick is my favorite coach, okay? So I'm sort of like I almost admire him more because I imagine him almost doing the math, like going, well, okay, if we deflate all these footballs to, to Tom Brady's liking. This increases our likelihood of winning an extra game this year, you know, uh, by one and a quarter percent. Now, if we get caught, 
we will lose a second-round draft pick because that's the most you can justify, penalize a team for this, and that would cost us, you know, like 1.33 wins over 16 games. <laughs> but the odds of detection are only 12%, so the math says do this. Like, it does seem like that's kind of how they operate. Now, when he came out and gave his press conference, he was so adamant about the fact that he had no knowledge of this, that everybody, and also strangely forthcoming in a way he usually is not, People were like, well, he must not have known. He must not have known. I mean, he wouldn't be saying this if he'd known. He's taking a huge risk overlooking the fact that he always lies to everyone all the time. (laughs) And then Brady gave his press conference and seemed like Brady was lying. He seemed really nervous about, I I, I think, partially because he seemed surprised that Bill Belichick kind of threw him under the bus on this. Um, And that made the whole thing worse. And it is going to impact this game, I think. I think that there will be... Um, it could be that Brady ends up playing great, or it could be that he ends up playing poorly, but I do think it's going to be hard for him to separate sort of uh, the amount of scrutiny this situation has kind of incurred. Because of the psychology of being distracted by this, or because the Patriots are less likely to try all the little uh, tricks and traps that they would normally try because they're being scrutinized more? Well, first of all, the, the whole thing with the, the, the balls themselves, okay, the Super Bowl is the one exception where a third party takes care of all the footballs. So this is the one game where even if they had always been deflating footballs all season long, um, it wouldn't matter in this game anyways, which also kind of you know makes people wonder why sometimes Brady's performances, particularly against the Giants in the Super Bowl, haven't been sort of on par with the rest of his year. It brings all these things into question, and this is the thing that I think is going to be on Brady's mind, the fact that for the first time, him... Not the organization as a whole, not his coach, but he is, is actually in this position where people are sort of questioning his authenticity and whether or not he actually, um, you know, is, is sort of, uh, you know, for the longest time, he seemed almost to be the, the, the poster boy, the ideal concept of what a quarterback should be like, all the way down to his, you know, dating Giselle or whatever. Like right. every aspect of his life seemed to be what you, what you would in a fictionalized account of a great quarterback, you know. And now it seems that people are beginning to turn on him and starting to wonder if maybe he is, uh, you know, known less of a villain than any of these other guys. And I wonder how that will impact him. I, it could make, I mean, like I say, it, he could end up going like 32 out of 38. He could be awesome. Um, but I could also see him struggling, particularly since if you're going to struggle against anybody, it's going to be against Seattle, who has clearly the best defense in the league. Yeah. Um, So let's talk about uh, ethics in sports here a little bit. If you deflate a a ball uh, a little bit to get a little advantage um, or a a big advantage, how much of an ethical violation is that? Because cheating is, is rampant in sports. Like they say that holding could be called on any play at any given time. Um, but it's overlooked in order to just let the, the game continue. How big of an ethical violation are we talking here? From an, from an ethical perspective, I suppose um, it is pretty large, although for kind of confusing reasons. Like, the thing about this scandal, um, and I think the reason it's got so much traction, is that it's one of the few times that there's a sports scandal that literally everyone can understand. It doesn't matter how much you follow sports. I mean, like, you know, my wife doesn't really follow sports, but she knows 
the ball is the ball, and you don't tamper with the one thing you're both using. And she's like, Brady shouldn't play in the Super Bowl. There's a woman in my apartment I talked to in the elevator. She's like, the Colts should be advanced to the Super Bowl. The Patriots should be withdrawn. Now, those are kind of overreactions. But I understand why they feel that way, because even if you, you talk about like how Spygate was, the idea of taping an opponent's defensive signals illegally or whatever, it's sort of confusing even to describe what happened. But people really understand this. They understand that the essential aspects of the game need to be static. Um, and it's, it's, it's the advantage, you know, is it easier to throw and catch and hold on to a slightly underinflated ball? Yes. In fact, there's a story on Slate this morning that's sort of now tracking how uh, it seems as though the Patriots have fumbled considerably less oh, yes. since 2006 when these rules were changed on the advocacy of Tom Brady. So there probably is an advantage. Is it enough of an advantage that they're beating teams they shouldn't beat? I doubt that. I mean, they would have beat the Colts if they had never thrown the ball once. But uh, uh, from an ethical standpoint, I guess it's not really a question over how much the impact is. It's just that... That this is such a that this would be such a clear violation of the spirit of the game. Yeah, I mean that's what's been bothering me. People talking about well, how much of a difference would it make? But a rule is a rule, and if you're breaking the rule, then you're breaking. Then why have rules if we're just going to compare uh, the severity for for being punished for breaking them with the effect that they have? Well, it also has to do with the fact that uh, I think there are certain differences between. Uh, you know, indiscretions. But for a great example, okay, like the page, uh, the uh, the the Seahawks uh, are are sort of under a lot of scrutiny too. They always are because the the assumption is that their defensive backs essentially hold and commit interference on every play. Mm. But they have come to realize that no one's going to throw a flag every time. The game would come to a standstill. So basically, they look at this man-made rule, this construction that basically you can touch a guy within five yards, and then you can't, you know, you, you, you have to you know, turn your head to meet the ball when it's coming, all of these things, and they push those boundaries. But that doesn't seem as problematic as this to a lot of people, because that seems to be like the, the rule itself is sort of fuzzy and hazy. And, you know, in, in 1976, pass interference was, inter- was, was totally different than it is now. Whereas the ball doesn't really change. Like, the ball is such a central component to this game that somehow it seems extra perverse to sort of, you know, to mess around with that. I, I, you know, it, it, I think to some people it almost seems uh, more discomforting than steroids. Because it's the, it's the equipment. It's the fundamental yeah, it, unit. It, it's, it's, it's the thing that, it's like the only aspect of pro football that is essentially the same as a fifth grade game. Yeah. The size of the field, the ball, the way points are scored, you know, those things are the only things that don't change. Do you think that uh, the Seahawks defensive backs or, like I said, the, the holding that supposedly happens on the offensive line all the time should be in a, in a fair world receiving the same scrutiny as this issue? Or is this a more egregious uh, possible offense than those? I mean, the, the thing... Like, I've never been a fan of instant replay, for example. I, I, I preferred when there was an instant replay because I feel like the game is being played by humans right. and the rules should be enforced by humans. And we don't, you know, and we don't need to sort of you know, uh, use machines to understand those things. And things like holding, 
Um, things like pass interference, clipping, all of these things. I don't mind that being something of a judgment call. But this rule is not a judgment call. This rule has always been sort of governed by a machine, mm-hmm. basically a machine that can govern what the pounds per square inch is. Um, it does seem different to me. Now, I don't, I don't really, like here, actually, I had sort of a theory, or not really a theory, kind of an, an unusable idea of how, if I was the commissioner, how I would penalize the Patriots for this. What would you do? I would basically wait till next year, and I, and I would say, okay, because of, the, uh, of the, the nature of how often you have committed these small offenses over time and how it does seem somehow connected to your whole organization, you will have to play this season with a 45-man roster. Ooh. All the other teams have 46, but they have 45. Um, I, that wouldn't be a huge it wouldn't be a huge problem. They could still succeed with that, but it would be a problem. Um, you know, and, whereas even a draft pick, you know, taking away a draft pick from them, well, in all likelihood, it's, well, it's going to be the 31st or 32nd pick. Um, so even if you take around the first pick, uh, it, it, it's, I don't think that's a that's enough of a penalty. Hmm. Um. What about in, in something like uh, like basketball? I was thinking about this because I'm thinking about people who break rules and do little things to get an advantage. I mean, if you always hear about John Stockton as mm. as this guy, supposedly the one of the greatest point guards of all time, but also notorious among people in the NBA for being one of the dirtiest players of all time, throwing that elbow uh, when no one's looking and, and doing that kind of thing. So is that... Like I'm looking for where it stops being just part of the game and part of uh, just the rough and tumble of sports, and when it becomes something that you would define as unethical. Well, okay, the things that John Stockton did, there, there, there are two ways to look at this. One, you could say because of his diminutive size, because he was six one and about 175 pounds or yeah. whatever, um, Referees perceived him differently, so they allowed him to be more physical on the idea that it really couldn't, uh, you know, he couldn't be doing that much damage anyways, which really probably is not true, but I think that's one way. Another way you can look at it and say, like, well, he went, much like the Patriots, he went right up against the line of what will and will not be enforced. And that, like, you know, if you you throw your knee at a guy when he's running by you, coming off a pick or whatever, away from the ball... Um, because there's the, the way basketball moves and the speed of the game and the way that the eyes tend to follow where the ball is, that seems to be acceptable. That if someone is doing that, that you can do that on occasion and not be penalized. If you're doing it every time, the way the Detroit Pistons were during that period, then it becomes different. Then it becomes it starts seeming like it's it's a, a strategy. Mm-hmm. And then, then maybe I guess as I'm talking through this, that might be the difference. It is one thing to do to kind of go beyond the rules in the course of a game. It's another to go into the game with the mentality that we're going to use this as an advantage, knowing that it's outside of the rules of the game. Which is why, like the Seahawks thing, there are some people who say the Seahawks are just physical, and there are some other teams who say this is their philosophy, and that's when it becomes a problem. Mm. Um. So with the game coming up, we, we talked about the heavy metal analogy for the Patriots being uh, being Thin Lizzy. I want to extend it out to a larger musical uh, selection because I've been thinking about it. It's just been rattling around in my head ever since. What about the Foo Fighters, where you have uh, cast-offs from uh, a dissolved Sunny Day real estate? 
You have Pat Smear from the Germs. Uh, now, like every time I see Pat Smear with the Foo Fighters, I'm like, that's the guy from the Germs up there with one of the most popular mainstream rock bands in the world. Would would Foo Fighters work? Um, well, I mean, the Foo Fighters are also kind of terrible. <laughs> Um, I, 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 like, cause they're, I'm not a, you know, they're just like the lamest of those bands. Um, but they're nice guys. That's the other thing. Yeah, the one yeah. thing that everybody says, the Foo Fighters are great guys. Whatever you feel about Dave Grohl, you can't say he's a bad drummer and you can't say he's a jerk. That doesn't really fit in with the Patriots. No, it doesn't. Patriot, doesn't. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, it's, uh, so they're, they're just, uh, they're, I mean, the sports comparison is that they're a little bit like the San Antonio Spurs that, that, even with their coaching staffs, kind of. But right. in terms of, like, the cultural comparison, um, I'm trying to think of rock or otherwise. It's, yeah, it's even, like a... Even in pop culture in general. Like, if, if you're describing... If you're setting the stage for the Super Bowl with somebody who doesn't follow football at all, you'd say, it's like so-and-so going against so-and-so. And, I, and I, if I could get that vocabulary, then I think I can talk to my wife about sports much more effectively. Well, you know, it's 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 interesting to me how how separate Seattle is now seen from the rest of the league. I mean, you know, there are other teams on the West Coast, but it's only Seattle they talk about having this strange advantage with the shift in time zones. You know? uh-huh. And they have the loudest crowd, which is like the, the, the NFL loves talking about that because typically that's only something you see in the college game where the crowd has an impact in the game. But Seattle's crowd does really impact. You know, for an outdoor stadium, that's very rare. Um, they, you know, Marshawn Lynch is a, just a fascinating figure because um, when he's playing well, uh, he's probably the best back in the league, certainly at the end of the game. Um, but yet he'll disappear for these stretches in the beginning of the year. You don't think of him often as one of the top three or four backs, but at the end of the year he always is. And then he doesn't say anything to the media and he eats all these Skittles. It's uh. like I, they're, they're such a strange team. Like, um, they're almost as if the way the Raiders used to be without sort of the antisocial behavior, but uh-huh. with a very separatist attitude and with this belief that that uh, everyone is against them even when people aren't, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, so then maybe, they're, maybe the Seahawks are flaming lips? Neutral Milk Hotel? <laughs> it's possible. That's possible. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. I'll keep working on that one. Yeah. Chuck Klosterman, thank you so much for being with us. We understand the world better now. You bet. Well, you know, it's been a while, but we're a ways into the NBA season, and uh, I think it's time to do another round of the NBA Tournament of Names. This is where the mascots of each team, the nicknames, the representation of each team battles representations of other teams in a battle to the death until we figure out who the most supreme nickname identity is. Never able to explain this really very carefully. <laughs> I'm a professional broadcaster. With me, as always, Mike Fotis, actor, writer, performer. Hello. And uh, Mr. Peter Clowney from the Infinite Guest Network. Hello there. So now we are to, looks like, eight teams remaining. Uh, two teams each out of the objects division, people division, animals division, 
an abstract intangible division. And so uh, let's uh, let's play for the championship of objects here. And this is Nets versus Rockets. And Mike, you've got the Nets. Okay, I'll take the Nets. So I've, as I've argued in the past, and I still think this is very strong, you need a net for the game of basketball to even happen. Right. Everybody knows that. Without can't the just net, walk. Well, yeah, because the hoop is fine, but you need the net to know that the ball went through. That's just the only way that it is. Right. Also, nets are just really valuable in the sport of hunting and attacking. It's absolutely true. If you want to grab butterfly collection, yeah, you use a net. Right. You never heard of like a tuna or a dolphin getting caught in a rocket. <laughs> they get caught in nets. I mean, those That's are true. really, really dangerous things. I'm not saying that a rocket's not, but there's something so deceptive about a net because you think it's so safe. So you're saying nets are so – they sucker you in. They totally they're essential sucker to you the in. game, but they're ready to pounce at any yeah, moment. Yeah, they they're totally good on defense, but where's right. the offense? Well, that that their offense is nothing their defense, but nets. which everybody knows is the best way to you play. You don't say nothing but rocket. <laughs> right. Yeah, you totally – that's Never a really that. great point. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll argue for the rockets, and here we go. Explosion, explosion, explosion. I mean, what happens when it hits a net, for example, John Mo? Everything blows up because it is a rocket. That's true. That is what happens. Unless the rocket goes through one of the holes in the net. Yeah. Well, it's not the the Houston bottle rockets. I guess my (laughs) one question for you, Photos, the rocket is coming. What does the net do? Um, the net hopes that or, I think it's over. Oh, hold on, hold on. <laughs> hopes for some wind <laughs> to blow it away. Good save there. Yeah, uh, rockets oh. all the way. Hey, oh, honestly, sorry, the nets went pretty far. The nets yeah. did really well. They got <laughs> past the Pistons and the Knicks. They they had a pretty easy draw. They went up against some pants in the first round. Yeah, that's, that's true. true. I do appreciate though that that we heard about the sport of hunting and aggression. Hunting and attacking. Well done. Yeah. yeah, Yeah, That's a good sport. It is a sport. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Moving on to the people division, we have the Lakers who survived both the Trailblazers and the Cavaliers. The Cavaliers never really had a chance. And we have the Warriors who got past the 76ers and also defeated the Kings. So Lakers versus Warriors. Uh, I'll go first on this one and argue the Warriors. Um, they are uh, men of war. They, uh, we, we have a broad array. We have, we have talked to uh, LARPers, historical reenactors, co- coast players around the world. We've got, uh, we've got World War II infantrymen. We've got uh, tribal warriors uh, from Native American tribes. We have soldiers of the future who are mostly made of fiberglass. We've got a wow. broad array. So no matter what you try to fight with, you can't get, draw a bead on the warriors. And uh, it's, it's, I mean, I... I think they can take out people who live by lakes. Okay. All right. So There's, all warriors of all time is essentially this team. Yeah. Saying. Yeah. I mean, Weaponry included? Only five on the field, on the court at any right. given time. Might and have, that's, that's my that's my argument. Right. Okay. Yeah. But right. there's a, they've got a deep bench, but you can't get the whole bench out there all <laughs> right. the time, right? And do they right. even speak the same language? Right. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for bringing that up, too. There's that was some frustrating. some tactical challenges, you know, I admit. I mean, the some of them know how to play that. zone. Yeah. Some of them okay, don't. Yeah. So yeah. There's, a, there's a lot of frustrating limitations with what you're talking about. The Lakers... Okay, yes, there are the people who live by the lake, and they're not exactly who I'm be thrilled to throw out there. But the ultimate Lakers... Poets, folk singers. Yeah. (laughs) The ultimate Lakers, Paul Bunyan. 
Uh, Paul Bunyan I again mean, he, on the team. We he forgot. Literally yeah. just stepped and caused lakes. All the lakes that, of Minnesota where the team is originally yeah. from. Yeah, that's what he did. Yeah. And oh, by the way, if that's not enough for you, I guess he'll call in his sixth man of the year, Babe, Babe the Blue, the Blue Ox. Ox. Right. And then you got some trouble. One swipe of the head. Yeah. You've got yeah. you've got Babe coming off the bench. I would think right. he'd be like your power forward. Babe is that's true. Babe could start. Nah, he's He's good for bursts, <laughs> right, bursts right. of time. <laughs> then he gets distracted. He gets and, distracted, yeah. so you got to yeah. keep him. Kind of like a bull on a basketball court. Um, yeah. So uh, Paul Bunyan again, how tall? Oh, at least 14,000 feet. 14,000 feet. Yeah. So yeah. essentially crushing the entire court under his feet, but creating we, a lake. We've got pistols. Yeah. And uh, and fiberglass some knives. tendrils. Yeah. Uh, some definitely the Lakers. tendrils. Yeah. <laughs> Like yeah, got that going one. up Again, against a myth like Paul Bunyan. Yeah, almost as good as the team is this year in real life. <laughs> no, Wait yeah. a second. We, Hold on. We've got what? Kobe indiscriminately Kobe. throwing fiberglass tendrils. <laughs> Trying to go 14,000 feet with it. Okay. All right. Lakers win the, the people uh, division. Over to the animal division. This is going to be interesting. Bulls versus Timberwolves. Or Timberbulls. Timberbulls. Mike, <laughs> Mike, your team in actual real life, the Bulls. Yeah, I just want to say to defend my team in real life yes. like this is the only playoff bracket that exists in which there might even be a competition between the Bulls and Timberwolves <laughs> I'll just throw it out there that will never happen yeah and I like the real Timberwolves as well don't me get me too. wrong but sure. come on yeah alright back to my point <laughs> back Thank to you. the other back world back to the real uh, real the Bulls win because Bulls are really really angry right their coach knows what strings to pull and that string is a red curtain <laughs> So whenever he needs to get that team riled up, he a portable just red curtain, even that curtain, and the Bulls get all mad, and then they get mad because Babe the Blue Ox left for free agency to join the Lakers, oh. and that gets them even angrier. Right, they're they're star essentially. So, yeah, they yeah. just lose their minds. Yeah, right. They see red. And the last time I checked. And I don't know if this is true, but the last time I checked, Timberwolves don't have horns on their heads that what? are meant for maiming. Mm, true. Yeah, good point. No maiming horns. Well, it comes down, as as many things do, to coaching. Uh, and the way the Timberwolves uh, prepare for this uh, blood battle is um, the coach, they're not very smart, the Timberwolves. They can have at most one or two thoughts in their head at any given right. time. So you don't lay out complex schemes for them. All you do is tell them that the Bulls players are a bunch of Liam Neesons. Mm. And then it recalls that movie. The Gray. The Gray, where uh, the Wolves uh, were set upon Liam Neeson. You show, um, you show them some of the Taken movies. You right. show them uh, Star Wars Episode One. Uh, and you you familiarize you got to familiarize your wolves with the filmography of Liam Neeson, um, which takes real concentration from wolves. It takes showing time. Showing the multiple Liam Neesons. It takes time, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and uh, but once you have taken the time, yeah. uh, right. and convinced them that all the Bulls players are Liam Neeson, then they will want to finally resolve what was never resolved in the gray. Photos, you looked uh, animated by that. I... Well, I mean. The gray argument is fine. I've never seen that movie, which I think should be a point for me. It, it, I'm just really, throwing it out there. Uh, <laughs> it ends with just a shivering Liam Neeson and some growling in the background. It's very unsatisfying. You're welcome, listening yeah. audience. Yeah. yeah. Sorry you missed the chance to see it eight years ago. Is that really how it ends? It really ends Oosh. ambiguously, yeah. which doesn't help John at all. <laughs> the, one, uh, <laughs> what, the other thing I threw out there is the other one of the other Liam Neeson movies you picked out was Star Wars Episode One, where... Um, 
Mr. He does not end well in that movie. No. He goes no, down. No. So, you, you know, you have That your... gives the taste of blood in the Timberwolves' mouth. <laughs> Quagog. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. Or whatever. Yeah. Um, uh, where, who can surround who in this scenario? Can the wolves surround the bulls? Are the bulls going to stop the wolves? The wolves are wolves? born surrounders. That's sort born of their whole offense. I think I is, that. Is, is surrounding, chasing, leaping and um I see but much like one stick will easily break right many sticks put together are hard to bend that's the whole bulls philosophy they all group together yeah, yeah i think it's true i think the bulls will circle and the wolves can't take them down i think the bulls definitely have this bulls take it Oof. bulls win the animal division yeah. pelicans never had a chance in that division <laughs> and then uh finally moving on to the abstract intangible division we have uh the raptors uh, who kind of were shoehorned into this division. Because they are animals, in fact. Well, they are animals, but in the dinosaur representation most often used in Toronto, they right. are an extinct animal yes. uh, and exist largely in CGI representation in Jurassic Park films. Uh, and so, and we needed an extra team in the abstract intangibles. <laughs> so uh, they are going up against the Heat. And uh, the, heat, uh, the Heat defeated the Suns already. The Heat are coming out pretty strong. So uh, Raptors versus Heat. Um, I'll go first with the Heat. Um, okay. It's 103 degrees outside. Your AC isn't working. It's just hot. Like you can't, you can like walk around in just your shorts, but you can't take your skin off because that is just going to, like you That's can't, somehow worse. I can't you explain. You can't escape the heat yeah. is what I'm saying. It is so oppressive that all it really it doesn't even it doesn't even really have a direct attack. It just makes the opponent such as a velociraptor or a bird raptor uh lose its will to live and uh then dies. So you're saying it wears you down. It wears you down. It breaks your spirit. Right, as it did LeBron uh, the first game of the finals last year. Exactly. So, yeah. yeah. Well, I, my understanding is back in dinosaur times, it was just hot. A lot. It was really hot. Yeah. Super hot a lot. It was, I you don't heard, see a lot of snow in dinosaur diorama. No, you absolutely don't. I think was, without checking, we can verify that yeah. you're correct. Yeah, it was like 189 degrees all yeah, the time. All the time. Yeah. So we could, just, we could just assume that raptors had no, an immunity what? to heat. Yeah. Mm. Like they, if they were playing the asteroids, right. <laughs> they'd have a problem. Right. Because of mass extinctions, mm. extinctions, but this, I don't yeah. think that this sun's that big of a deal, or the heat is that big of a deal. Between the heat and velociraptors, which is still around today and which died out? Uh, birds? And that would be... Well, uh, there are birds that are raptors. Well, there are birds. Yeah. I mean, I do think that a, an asteroid, which is less big and less important than a sun, looks like it kind of killed off the dinosaurs. So, and we know the heat defeated the sun. The heat has defeated civilization itself. Yeah. I, the, the, the whole planet is getting hotter and hotter and hotter. I'm going to go with hold, heat hold again. Hold on, hold on. If the heat <laughs> defeated the Wait, sun, yeah. didn't they just defeat themselves? Yeah. Well, that's, In theory, I mean, neither one of them I don't should think be able that, to go to the next round. <laughs> I think we got pretty meta on that one, I'm going to mm, say. Mm. But in fact, the, I think we came down to the fact that the heat uh, was Did the they own, assimilate the sun? Well, there was a black hole sun on the sure. heat side, remember? Yeah. And it sucked in the sun. I've been wondering when it would come. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I know you were. Yeah. Um, so from that logic, it's hard to know exactly 
how the heat would be defeated by a bunch of dead dinosaurs. I'm sorry. That's fine. You're all right. All right. The heat take the abstract intangible. I will division. say I'm interested to see what the bulls bring to the next fight. I know. Against it's going to be heat. exciting. Yeah. Tune in next time for the NBA Tournament of Names. We'll get all the way to a winner. It's Rockets versus Lakers in the next round, and the Bulls take on the Heat. It's like, now suddenly I feel like Ahmad Rashad or Bob Costas. Yeah, totally. Bulls. Because <laughs> I sound like that. Yeah. <laughs> Peter Clowney and Mike Fotis, thanks. Thank, Thank you. you. Turning to the Major League Lacrosse draft. Yes, it has gone down, and Lyle Thompson from Albany was the number one pick from uh, for the, the Florida uh, team, uh, who also had the second pick in the draft, and they went with Connor Bushek from Cornell. So yeah, Albany and Cornell players go 1-2. Will Haas uh, goes to Charlotte uh, with the third pick. He's from Duke. Boston, picking fourth and fifth, goes with Ryan Tucker from Virginia and John Glesner from Army. So if, the, if that's what your mock draft looked like, for the Major League Lacrosse draft. Congratulations, you did quite well. And just to just to round it out, pick number 60, the Mr. Irrelevant of the Major League Lacrosse draft, Nick Ocello from Notre Dame. Sorry, Nick, but still, good job, in a way. Home Dunk is part of the Infinite Guest Podcast Network. Go to infiniteguest.org. You can hear my other show, Wits, over there. Uh, that's the one that I do that is on the radio sometimes. It's got comedians and singers, and we have a real good time. All sorts of other podcasts over there. Secret Skin with Open Mike Eagle, who composed the theme song and performed the theme song of Home Dunk. A Tiny Sense of Accomplishment with Jess Walter and Sherman Alexi. Lots of great stuff that you need to check out. The producer of Home Dunk is Nina Patak. We get production help from Steve Nelson, Peter Clowney, and various engineers and sorts of folks all over the building here in St. Paul. I'm John Moe. Bye now. <laughs>